challenge. But we look at these first few verses in this great letter that was written by the Apostle Peter, who is so well known to us through his exploits within the pages of the Gospel accounts. So in these first two verses, we learn some very important things. And then the verses that follow is the application of Peter's emphasis on this gift of salvation. Let's read these first five verses together. Then we'll do a very brief review over verses 1 and 2 and then get into verses 3 through 5. So here's what Peter writes to us. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be, ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, in these first two verses that we looked at, we learn that Peter is the author. He is an apostle of God. And the usage of that word apostle is in a very unique and specific sense, not in the general sense as it is applied to all disciples in general. You and I are all considered apostles in the sense that we are to be messengers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But in this very special sense, the term apostle was applied to a very limited number of people. It was, it was given to the first twelve disciples, minus Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus, adding Matthias, who replaced Judas, and then later the Apostle Paul, who was called in the book of Acts. Now, to be an apostle in a specific sense meant that you were personally called by Jesus to fulfill that rule, you learned the gospel message from him. You were eyewitnesses of his resurrection. And you were given special powers to authenticate the message of the gospel through the preaching and teaching of the revelation that God was going to give to these unique individuals and the birthing of God's word as a completion of the Old Testament. Now we see in these first two verses that Peter is writing to believers in the region of Asia Minor. If you know anything about first century Christianity, it was not a walk in the park, far from it. It was a very difficult thing to be a follower of Christ. It was considered treacherous in some parts of the world, and it often brought with it great persecution at the hands of those who rejected the gospel message, whether they be Jews or barbarians. The message of hope through Jesus was not welcomed in first century Asia Minor, as it often isn't welcomed in our own country and culture today. Now, Peter calls these individuals aliens, and it's a term that's used to remind them that this world is not their true home. It is but a temporary place of existence until the Lord would call them home. Now, we would do well to remember, because this is not true just for those in Asia Minor, it is true for all who are the children of God. We are aliens. This is not our true home. 
our true citizenship is in heaven. And make no mistake about it, our enemy will do everything that he can to convince us that this world has the greatest importance in our lives. And that's why it's so easy for us to get off track and celebrate all that this world has to offer. It never ceases to amaze me. You can read about individuals who have all the world says you really need to be happy. In fact, in my downtime, Amy Hawk gave to me a biography of sorts about the life of Steve McQueen. And as you read about Steve McQueen and saw what his life was like, he had the adulation and adoration of millions and millions of people, had all the money one could ever hope to have, and yet he still asked this question, why am I here? What is my life really to be about? So you and I need to be reminded as we are tempted, as we are deceived and distracted through living our lives in this world, that this is not our true home. This is a temporary place for us. And as one former man in ministry used to say, you and I indwell an earth suit and we will one day go and be clothed in glory in our true home. And that is Heaven. Now, as we look at these first couple of verses, Peter affirms that they were chosen by God just as we were for this great gift of salvation according to his foreknowledge and this calling and this salvation came through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. We are called to this magnificent salvation for the purpose of being sanctified by him, being conformed to his image, through a life of obedience to His teachings. You and I are not to live our lives so that we can get all the toys the world has to offer. We're not to live our lives so that we have power and fame and notoriety. We we are to live our lives so that we can live a life of obedience to the high calling that the Lord Jesus has for us that was known before the foundation of the world that you and I are to be working out in our lives today. This salvation that we enjoy is given to us for a very specific purpose, and that is this, to serve Him with our lives. We are to serve Him with our lives. We're not saved to clean our act up. We're not saved to bail us out of a problem. We're not saved so that we can help other people. We're not saved so that we can occupy a seat in the church. We are saved so that we can live a life of obedience and service to Him and through His work make a difference in this world as messengers of the good news of Jesus Christ. Now that's a very brief overview of verses 1 and 2. So now we look at the new material in verses 3 through 5. So Roman number 2 and our outline as we continue from last time is the call to praise. We are to praise God. You know, that isn't stated in such a way to be understood that it's dependent upon something Or someone. We are to praise God. And you can put a period there. You can put an exclamation point there. It is not up for debate. It is not to be considered optional. We are to praise Him. Beginning verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that word blessed in the Greek New Testament is the Greek word eugaletos, which means to speak well of. Eugaletos 
is the English word that is derived from that is what? Eulogy. When you go to a funeral, somebody will stand up and they will give a eulogy. And what they will do is they will speak well of that individual. Now, many, many people will be in a coffin dead and there will be someone who's speaking well of this individual. And somebody out there is going, I don't know about that. I knew that fella. I didn't get to experience that in my life. But nonetheless, you go ahead and speak well of Him. Well, for us to bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ means to speak well of God. Now, to be sure, we don't bless God the way God blesses us. Isn't that right? We are the recipients of God's numerous, innumerable blessings in our life. We can't bless Him in that way. But what you and I can do is we can speak well of God. Blessing God is rooted in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, it expresses faith and love and devotion to God as a result of the covenant that God made with the nation of Israel. Now, in this Jewish worship, there is this expression or this phrase that exemplifies this and it's Shemana Ezra and what it means is the 18 blessings. In Jewish worship there were the 18 blessings and so these 18 blessings blessings were recited three times a day in the synagogue every day by every individual meaning that 54 times in the day The blessing of God cascaded through the temple by every individual who attended. Is God worthy of our speaking well of Him? Imagine hearing, and that's a good time to say yes, amen. Imagine hearing, blessed be thou, O Lord, 54 times in the sanctuary of God every day, by every individual who called that place of worship my home. That phrase, blessed be the Lord, appears 47 different times within the writings of the Old Testament. A sampling, and three we're going to look at, First Kings, I'm sorry, blessed, uh, you, blessed means to speak well of, Three samplings, 1 Kings 8.56, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to His people Israel according to all that He promised. Not one word has failed of all His good promise which He promised through Moses His servant. Can we speak well of the faithfulness of God and blessing our lives in the way that He has? How about in the book of Job 121? Job said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, when Job wrote this, he had already gone through all of his trials, and he wrote those words, having already been stripped of everything that he held near and dear to his life, and yet he would say, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Psalm 41, 13. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Make no mistake about it. Right now, in the heavenly places, the elders and the angels and the cherubim and the seraphim are all singing in great unison. 
Blessed be the name of the Lord. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. So if this is taking place in heaven right now, if this is what was specifically instructed to the nation of Israel, what is it that you and I should do today? We are to praise Him because He is faithful. Now specifically, in the application of these verses, letter A, in the praising of God, we praise Him for the gift of salvation. This is really kind of the central theme in these opening verses, is this gift of salvation. And as Peter has already stated this in a very general sense, he's going to continue to expand upon what this actually means for these original recipients in the region of Asia Minor and for all of God's children for all of time who will come to know this to be the eternal unchangeable, faithful Word of God. Letter B, not only does Peter call us to praise Him for the gift of salvation, but for the mercy of salvation. Verse 3 continues, who according to His great mercy. You know, we are not saved because we are deserving of it. We aren't saved because we can live up to some future expectation And we are certainly not saved because we can do enough to earn it. We are saved according to His great mercy. Mercy is God not giving us what we deserve. You know, we fight this in our humanness. Our culture wants nothing more than to celebrate the status of man totally ignorant of the sinfulness of mankind and the great need of mercy that we have. But oh, how blessed we are to know that there is the one true God who is a God of mercy and according to His mercy has allowed us to enjoy the salvation that He provides. Mercy addresses our miserable spiritual condition. And assuming we need to be reminded of this, Scripture very very clearly states that you and I, previous to our salvation, are dead in our sin. Ephesians 2.1 And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were separated from God. You were indifferent towards God. You had no desire for God. You had no capacity to love God. And when we were dead, God loved us. Us. Not only were we dead in our sins, but we possessed a deceitful heart about our deadness and about our need. Ephesians 2.2 In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, doing what the world does, thinking what the world thinks, acting like the world acts, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the demonic forces of the spirit that is now working in the sons of of disobedience. This was you and I prior to our salvation. This is what you and I fight against every day of our lives as we seek to put the salvation that we celebrate front and center in our lives. Not only that, we're cor- we had a corrupt mind filled and dominated by sinful desires. Ephesians 2.3 Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, 
indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And so as you and I live out our salvation, in the constant presence of sin, there is this bright neon light flashing saying, sin is good. Sin is fun. It's not a big deal. No one's going to know. It's the corruption that exists in our minds because we are not yet a completed work. Not only that, we were enslaved to sin and we were destined for hell. Jesus taught this in John 8.34. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. But as the children of God, because of the mercy of God, you and I are not stuck in that spiritual state because God has made us alive according to His great mercy. Ephesians 2, 4-7. But God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead, even when we were dominated by, dominated by our sinful desires, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Every day of our life ought to be a day in which the mercy of God is made new and we say, man, God is just so good. God is so gracious to me. He is so filled with mercy. How could I not give Him all that I have and all that I am? Well, not only has He done this, He has also made us new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, New things have come. In addition to this, He set us free from the bondage of sin. Romans 6, verses 6 and 7, Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin for He who has died is freed from sin. But you, you and I do is we resuscitate our dead self, so that we can give ourselves to those sinful desires. We're to stop doing that in view of the mercy of God. It is for this reason that Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and as born-again children of God. What should we say? Amen. Blessed be the Lord and God it's the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we ought to say. For this gift of salvation, for being recipients of the mercy of salvation, and because this is in the text, we'll treat it separately, we also celebrate the new birth in salvation. Verse 3 continues, who has caused us to be born again. Here, in this passage of Scripture, it literally means to be re-begat. To be born is to begat. To be born again is to rebegat. You have been rebegatten through the mercy of God. That's a good thing. Sounds kind of foreign, right? It's a good thing. Now, what is the most famous account of the need to be born again that we can find in our Scripture? Well, it's the encounter that Jesus had with Nicodemus all the way back in John chapter 3 when He says, 
Unless one is born again, he will not enter into the kingdom of God. Like Nicodemus, many in this world don't understand the need to be born again. They don't recognize the need to be born again. And they don't desire the product of being born again. Many in our world believe in a God of love who would never punish sin. Well, God's love. God's too good to do that, right? They believe in the inherent goodness of man that does not need the mercy of God because after all, I can live a life that elevates up to a standard that I desire that surely God is going to be satisfied with. They believe in the efforts of man as being adequate to satisfy the righteous standard of God. Well, what is the standard of God? It's perfection. Are you perfect? Hey, I failed that a long time ago, right? We cannot be perfect. And the longer we live, the more obvious it should become to us that we are far from perfect. And that's why we are desperately dependent upon the mercy of God. The world who doesn't recognize, desire, or understand the mercy of God, how they apply that to the lack of need for God is woefully wrong. We are absolutely and completely dependent upon the mercy of God that gifts us, G-I-F-T-S, gifts us with this new birth as a result of the finished work of Christ on the cross. Now, letter D, this new birth, this salvation, results in the hope, excuse me, the hope that results from our salvation. Verse 3 concludes, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Not hope in a generic sense, but a hope. It's a living hope. We have been born again to a living hope. Paul would express it this way in Romans 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exalt, celebrate, praise, in the hope of the glory of God. The glory of God is being able to see Him in His fullness. The glory of God is revealed in us through the completion of our salvation. When this physical life is over, we stand before Him and we enter into His glory in a glorified body, seeing Him as He really is. The living hope that we are to have now becomes an absolute reality for you and I today. Now, this is only obtained... Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The implication there is our faith in the finished work of Christ. Not religious activity. Not in denominationalism. Not in morality. Not in honest effort. It is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I want to spend a minute and talk about this living hope. Implied In this term, living hope, there is an intended contrast that you and I are to have as we think about that. What is the contrast to a living hope? 
Well, there'll be a dead hope or it'll be no hope. Isn't that right? Well, what is a dead hope? What it doesn't mean to have no hope. It is a hope that has no basis in reality, a hope that has no chance of ever becoming true. Now, today, I can hope that I can become a world-class athlete. But I promise you, that day has long since passed. I can hope that I can become an accomplished musician and be able to sit down and perform in a way that people would say, wow, that's just marvelous. But I can assure you that that also has long since passed. I can hope that I can become an accomplished scholar or theologian or be acclaimed in academic circles, but I can assure you that's simply a fantasy. There is no hope that any of those things are ever going to be true of me. Well, the hope that exists in the world is just as baseless as the hope that I might have of being a world-class athlete, an accomplished musician, or a respected theologian. There is no basis in reality. It's simply a figment of one's imagination. Now, our hope and our salvation isn't anything like the hope that exists in the world. Our hope is based upon the character of God as expressed through His infallible, unchangeable Word. Now I want to tell you, if you're not sure about the character of God, your hope in your salvation will be greatly diminished. If you don't have a confident hope in the accuracy, in the infallibility, and the truthfulness of God's Word, your hope is going to be greatly diminished. Through our new birth, we have been born into a new spiritual world that we cannot see. We get bits and pieces of it in our experience. We get a brief sampling of that in this life that we live. But I can assure you that there is a feast that awaits God's children when we enter into this new spiritual world that we have been born into that we can't yet see. We will enter into a spiritual world that is dominated by the full and unadulterated glory of God, the absolute complete presence of God, apart from the presence of sin. It is a world that our minds cannot completely fathom. It is, like, it is unlike anything we have ever experienced. What we believe is that it will be far superior than our minds can even comprehend. And folks, that gives to you and I today a living hope that empowers us and encourages us to take the next step, to follow the God that we know and that we love, to be as obedient as we know to be, knowing that this world does not dictate or define who God is, or our experience or understanding of who God is, but there is a new world that awaits us far beyond what our minds can even comprehend. We can lose sight of that hope as we see this world that we live in swirl into deeper depths of debauchery and unspeakable sin. When we're facing difficult circumstances that seem to crush us, 
when the doctor gives us a report that we were dreading to hear, we possess a living hope that will not be diminished by what takes place in this world. This world is a training ground for us to taste and see that the Lord is good with a confident expectation of the new spiritual world that awaits us when our lives are over in this world. This hope is a living hope and that it not only brings to us a sense of life among the dead, but it reminds us of life everlasting in the presence of God. Our hope is in the certainty of our salvation and what that means for us in the future. Now, this living hope that results from our, from our salvation is expressed here as an inheritance. The inheritance here, I skipped, missed this, and I'm sorry. The inheritance here is our true home. Write that in your blank if you desire to do that. This salvation is expressed as an inheritance, the inheritance of our true home. Verse 4, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Here, inheritance means wealth or legacy that is passed down to another individual. Now, in the Old Testament understanding, this is expressed by something physical, and most specifically, it is the promised land. That was the end-all, be-all for the Jewish person, was to enter into the promised land where they would find rest and live in the constant presence of God. Now, our promised land is not a physical land, but it is heaven itself. But this is expressed in Numbers 26, 53. Among these, the land shall be divided for an inheritance according to the number of names. In the New Testament, this inheritance is expressed as possessing something spiritual. This is shown to us in Acts 20, verse 32. And now I commend you to God and to the world, to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. This is a spiritual reality. It is a spiritual thing that we are going to inherit. Inherit This inheritance is going to be found for us in eternity when we enter into the gates of heaven. As those longing for their true home, these aliens who were spread out all over Asia Minor, not in the place of their homeland, we are reminded of what is ahead. Unlike a land that can be invaded or suffer Incredible drought, Peter describes our spiritual inheritance as something that is imperishable. It is not corruptible. It is not able to die. It cannot be destroyed. Now, in a technical sense, there's, there's nothing in this world that is truly imperishable. You say, well, what about gold? Well, you can, through chemical, dissolve gold so that you can't see it as gold. It still exists, but not in a way that we would recognize it. But this salvation is incapable of being corrupted or destroyed in any way. Additionally, it is undefiled, meaning it is unstained. It is not polluted. Everything in this physical world has been touched by sin. But our salvation, when it is realized and we enter into our eternity... It is absolutely and completely freed from the power 
and the presence of sin. This salvation is unfading, meaning it's not subject to decay. It never will lose its its magnificence. I can buy a new pair of pants and I can wash them 25, 30 times and what happens? They begin to fade. I get a new car and in 10 years what happens? It's begun to fade. It's not like it used to be. That's not the way it is for our salvation. It will be unfading for all of eternity. And this salvation is secured by God. Notice that it says here in verse 4, it is reserved in heaven for you. Reserved means, I'm sorry, reserved means guarded or watched over. When it's reserved in heaven for you, that reservation was made by God and it is secured by God through the sovereign work of salvation. God has secured our place in heaven. You know what? We can't call ahead and make a reservation in heaven. We don't need to. God has already done that. We don't need a credit card to secure our spot. Our faith in the finished work of Christ has already done that. We don't need to leave extra early to make sure there's still a spot for us. God has secured a place for us in heaven. This place that God has secured, our inheritance, that is our salvation, is protected by God. Verse 5 who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Our place in heaven is secured by God. Our salvation is protected by God. That means that it is safe and secure. It can't be lost or taken away. We rest in the strong protection of the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords. You and I sit securely in the palm of God the Father and Jesus would say that no one can snatch us out of the Father's hand. Now, this salvation that we celebrate is possessed by faith. It isn't something to be earned. It certainly isn't deserved. But it's possessed by faith in the Word of God and the work of Christ And the salvation is to be realized in and for eternity. Forever and forever, time without end, we will enjoy this great gift of salvation. So as we think about that, what do we say in response to that? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, salvation isn't the end of, it is the beginning of, it is the springboard for. And in a general sense, what we're going to be talking about over the next several weeks is rooted in the reality of this salvation that you and I know and celebrate and strive to live out in our daily lives. But we need to be reminded that we can't live that life apart from obedience to the teaching of God's Word, of the desire to follow as the Holy Spirit leads, as a commitment to sacrifice and die to ourselves so that we can live for Christ and serve Him as He is worthy of our serving Him. Would you 
Bow your heads and pray with me, please. Father, why is it so easy for us to lose sight of this marvelous gift of salvation? Has it just become so familiar that we take it for granted? Is it just lost its zing? Is it just old school? God, the reality of what it is you've done for us in making us new and allowing us to be born into a new spiritual world where we will see you as you really are, as we will celebrate your presence and your goodness for time without end. How can we not treasure this so that it dominates the lives that we live? Father, I pray that you would make each of us more sensitive to, more keenly aware of this gift of salvation in all of life's experiences, the good and the bad, through this world that you've created for us to enjoy as we look at nature, as we look at the creatures that you've made, would all of these things remind us of not only your worthiness, but of this unique relationship that we have with you as a result of your mercy towards us and gifting us with salvation. Father, may the desires of our heart be found in living a life that's pleasing to you. Thank you that you promise to be with us every step of the way, that you promise to be faithful to empower us, that as we stumble and fall, your mercy and your grace will cover us. Would we be the light and the salt this world so desperately needs? May we be faithful to say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.